Shalom, and welcome to The Straw Hat, hosted by Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. We are the official podcast of Anshay Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So I'm very excited about our uh, guest uh, on today's uh, podcast, Rabbi Zach Trubaf, an old uh, friend of mine, a classmate, a colleague uh, who is uh, currently uh, teaching uh, in Israel. And he just published a book of essays uh, on the thought of Rav Cook and Rav Shagar. It's called Torah Goes Forth from Zion, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. And I'm uh, really, really excited that, uh, that Zach is here uh, to talk about his book and his ideas and, and what brought him to, uh, to want to, to share these ideas um, in, the, in this format. Uh, so, uh, so welcome. And, and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. How does a, a nice uh, modern Orthodox kid from Massachusetts end up uh, writing about Rav Cook and, and Rav Shagar, uh, who are not exactly, um, you know, the, 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 the common, uh, you know, um, uh, curriculum of, of uh, you know, the, the schools and uh, where, where you, when you grew up. Thank you, uh, Rabbi Wachenfeld. Uh, David, it's good to, good to be with you. So, you know, my engagement with the, the writings and the thought of, of Rav Cook and, and Rav Shagar um, very much stems from, from a sense of love for them and, and, and their teachings. And the way that love's, love works, the way that love usually works for a lot of us, is that you don't always expect it. Uh, and then when it hits you, you're never quite the same afterwards. So for me, my encounter with their thought with, with religious Zionism in a, in a deep and serious way that first took place um, after my wife and I got married. We got married, uh, I think it was two years out of college, uh, and neither of us had had the chance to spend a year in Israel studying Torah in, in Israel between high school and college or during college. And so it was something we really wanted to do after we were married and the idea of being able to spend at least the first year, if not longer, of our married life together studying Torah, uh, living in Yerushalayim was something very, very special to us. And so basically two weeks after we got married, uh, we moved to Jerusalem and we began to, to learn Torah. And that one year quickly uh, turned into three and we thought very seriously about making Aliyah. Uh, at the time we felt that we weren't in a place to do it, but our hope was stay as long as we can and that will create the impetus to come back again in the, uh, you know, in, in, in the future. Um, for me, I, I first encountered the, the teachings of, uh, of Rav Cook first and foremost. And I was immediately just captivated by the, the breadth of his thinking, the creativity of his thinking, the verve of, of, of the energy of, of his thought, the poetics. I mean, there's just so much there that one can experience and one can be, can be drawn to, both in terms of ideas, both in terms of content and 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 form and, and of course when you ever study the writings of Rav Cook, especially when you live in Israel, you realize these aren't just abstractions, right? What he taught has animated Jewish life here and animated particularly the religious Zionist community here uh, for uh, decades. And I think what's also just important to realize from my own sort of narrative and story, I grew up in a uh, traditional conservative, conservatox kind of home, um, which meant that we were pretty much Shomer Shabbos and pretty much Shomer Kashrut. Uh, but at the same time, I went to public school, even though I had a lot of friends who were, you know, went to Orthodox and, and, and all of that, um, always felt a little bit twixt and, and between. And I was very, very active Jewishly in high school and I helped found an Orthodox students group even when I was in, sorry, in college even. Um, but there was a sense for me that I sort of have to, can't be betwixt and between forever. And after college, I was like, if I want to do this, I want to do this in a way that feels serious um, to me in a way that has integrity. And 
And and in that sense, when we came to Israel after we got married, it was that was the time to really to really affirm that and to dig deeper into that. And so for me, my sense of of of, of a full deep commitment to Torah and Halacha came when we were in Israel. And I think that's significant because religious Zionist life in Israel is so different from modern Orthodox life in America. They're both so similar, but also so different each in, each in their own ways. Um, religious Zionist life in Israel is in some ways just much more natural, right? To be religious Zionist here feels you are like you are going with the flow much more so than even modern orthodoxy in, in America. Um, and also religious Zionist life here is a bit more diverse, a bit more creative. I don't, I don't think it's, I think these are sort of commonly understood even in America. And uh, religious Zionist life here has its own integrity and autonomy. You're, you're not threatened by those to your right, the Haredim, right? You have your own institutions and your own way of being in the world and in, in, in Israel. Uh, and in that sense, it just it enabled more open possibilities and, 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 and thinking. And that's what religious Zionist thought has always really uh, drawn me to is, is the creativity that is so, so central to it. And the willingness to, to think to broader horizons because there's not all these fears that are so dominating um, the religious, religious life. I mean, there's plenty of fears. Life in Israel obviously has all of its uh, challenges, but there just seemed to be a bit more of an openness. And that's the way I wanted my religious thinking and commitments to, to reflect. And I, I found that very, very much in, in, in Ruff Cook and other religious Zionist thinkers when, when I was here. Um, and before I went back to America, I got smicha when I was here, and then I went back to Chavvei for a second smicha. But I bought uh, Rav Shagar's first published book, or first published serious book called Kelim Shigurim, uh, Broken Vessels. And I brought it back to America with me. It's difficult to read, difficult to understand for a variety of reasons, but there was something there that really drew me in. Um, and I was able to recognize in, in, in Rav Shagar too, there's so much that... Uh, has what to um, uh, you know to uh, to offer. Um, just one other piece I'll say that really un unites both of them. If there's one thing, I mean, there's many things that unite Rav Cook and Rav Shagar, but one of the things that I am consistently drawn to is this dialectical thinking um, that is such a part of their of their thought. Rav Cook looks at the world in all of its contradictions. He embraces the world in all of its contradictions. And that is very rare for religious thinkers. Religious thinkers tend to think ideologically and ideology functions to erase contradiction, try to pro provide a single coherent and clear narrative. Um, and Rav Cook is saying, wait a second, right? if you look at history, if you look at the human being, there's so much contradiction there. How can we understand um, what it means to try to even begin to encompass them within a, a, a view um, that enables them to, uh, to, to, live, uh, to live together. And again, religious Zionism and orthodoxy, these are contradictory ideas, right? And those, the sense of the contradiction that is at the heart of religious Zionism and modern orthodoxy often gets wiped away, but Rav Cook understood it. Um, Rav Cook often has a, 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 a positive belief that it can be harmonized, there can be synthesis. Um, Rav Shagar takes that dialectical view and tends to emphasize the contradiction that not everything has a happy ending. But at the same time, he embraces the contradiction because to be a religious Zionist is to live that. To be modern Orthodox is to live that. And for both Rav Cook and Rav Shagar, that's what gives these these ways of uh, thinking such power, right? Because to so how, how is that different from from the kind of dialectical thinking that that maybe some Americans are familiar with from Rav Soloveitchik's writings? Where I see him, you know, we're reading uh, Vikashta Misham, uh, a group of us in the shul right now. It's like very much, you know, torn forever with this in this dialect, love and fear, and right, for example, and, and many others throughout his uh, Adam One, Adam Two, and they're irreconcilable, and they're they're never there's never resolution. Rav Cook, I see there's a harmonious 
you know, synthesis that he is writes about and yearns for. Um, is that is that is that is that a correct identification of a difference in their thinking, or the, how they deal with that dialectic, or that with tension in general? It's a good question. What what makes Rav Soloveitchik's thought so powerful, but also challenging, is that it is primarily built upon abstractions, right? Like the, the, he takes these sort of categories as hype, you know, these uh, like almost essentialized categories, and sort of argues that they're sort of in conflict, and there may be some resolution, there may not be resolution, but they tend to remain as abstractions. And when religious thought remains purely on the level of abstraction, um, it's everything can sound good and sort of make sense but you don't have to engage with the messiness of what does this mean and actually as it plays out in life. Um, and that's the, that's the criticism of Rav Soloveitchik that I'm not the first to make that. I mean, Rav Shigar emphasizes it a lot, but it's a clear point. If you stay on the level of ideals, um, you're missing something, even if, the, even if you're saying something real about those ideals. So what makes Rav Cook and Rav Shigar different is that Rav Cook plays it out in history, right? That's one of the clear ways in which he tries to show how contradiction keeps recurring. And once you're looking at history, it's messy, right? If you're looking at the ways in which, you know, Hasidim and Miknagdim, you know, secular Zionists and religious Zionists, now we're in like the nitty gritty of things. And uh, it, it just brings a whole different way of thinking to it. Um, and for Rav Shigar too, he, he deals with the most, these very difficult religious questions, but it is always grounded in a very real existential perspective of like, how do we, like, this is a problem. Like, Rav, Rav, Rav Shigar saw himself as an educator responding to his students' difficulties. So he had to have answers for their questions. They couldn't remain on the level of abstraction. And it may be that Rav Soloveitchik one-on-one would sort of translate his thinking into sort of the concreteness, but we don't really have that in his writings uh, so much anymore. I mean, we don't see it there. Um, and religious Zionism, through its commitment to Zionism, right, it, it was a state-building you know, enterprise. It was about... The, real Jewish life in Israel. It's about serving in the army. I mean, these are deeply messy, contradictory things, and religious Zionism has always put them front and center in their in their religious thinking. They were not just, uh, you know, abstract ideals for them. They were real, and everybody had to deal with these issues. So take this back to your story. Um, you, you encountered these thinkers of Cook when you were a, a student, your first uh, year studying in Israel, and of Shigar as you returned to America to, to come to years of yeshiva study in America. But it it took you, you know, you had a American stage of your career, which uh, you know you served a congregation in in Cleveland for for a number of years, and then you moved back to Israel, and, and that's where this book, you know, came to its so. It also seems not not coincidental that this book wasn't the product of uh, of, of your service in America, but it, it took returning to Israel to to bring this book to yeah. fruition. Yeah. So I'll, look, I'll say one thing. I certainly saw aspects of my own life reflected in Rav Cook's biography, in that Rav Cook is again born outside of Israel. Uh, he studies outside of Israel, serves as a rabbi outside of Israel, and he moves to Israel in 1904 at the age of 39, um, where he essentially makes Aliyah and becomes the chief rabbi of, of Yafo. And it's a very important time for him, creative time. He's encountering secular Zionists, idealists, a lot of secular Zionists who used to be very from and are still very learned, but have abandoned it. So now they're building up Tel, you know, Tel Aviv, the new settlements, and all of this, essentially. Uh, and uh, for, for Rav Cook. Um, he's in Israel for 10 years before he leaves for a rabbinic conference and happens to be when World War I breaks out and he's stuck outside of Israel for another three plus years until he, until he returns. So for me, like this idea of being in Israel and receiving profound spiritual inspiration, having to leave and then being in this position of the outside looking in, which Rav Cook writes about extensively, particularly in Shimona Kavatzim, which are written large portions when he's outside of, uh, of Israel. 
Um, in this sense, how the love of Israel and the Jewish people, the yearning for it is the energy that ultimately both drives creativity and helps get you, um, you know, get you back there. Um, so seeing that and kind of knowing that is always, was always very powerful, you know, for me that you can feel this connection to this place, even when you're not here and you hear its call. And it's always sort of reminds you that call, like where you ultimately are supposed to be, you know, oriented towards. And I use that, the name of the book, comes from Sefer Yishayahu, where it describes that um, obviously there'll, there'll be a new revelation of Torah from Jerusalem. But part of the way the book describes it is this light in the distance, in the darkness that people will see and peoples will, you know, will march towards. And for me, again, Rav Cook's Torah, Shagar's Torah was that light in the darkness, even when we were in America, reminding us, okay, that's where we're, that's where we are ultimately um, supposed to uh, to be. It, it just where their thought, again, so, sometimes teaching Rav Cook and Rav Shagar in America felt like, you know, trying to put the square peg in a round, in a round hole. Like it just seemed not the sort of religious, intellectual culture and language that modern orthodoxy is is used to. I mean, modern orthodoxy does have this connection to religious Zionism, but it, sometimes that connection is a bit tenuous. But again, where their thought was so important to me was that being a, a synagogue rabbi is a job full of profound contradictions. Um, again, the tension between the ideals of the job and the reality of the job, um, and the simple fact that people in the shul are often so different from each other, so ideologically different from each other. And the question becomes, like, how do you make sense of this contradiction? How do you live with this contradiction? How do you ensure that the contradiction doesn't tear everything apart? And can there be any sort of synthesis or harmony that is pulled together with this? And, you know, as a shul rabbi, like you go from the banal to the sublime back to the banal, like every hour of every day. Um, and I feel like that sensibility is one that Rav Cook and Rav Shigar understood. And, 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 and what they also understood is you have to see it as a totality. You can't just send, pull one out, pull one piece out and say, that's what it is. It's all of that. And their thought very much helped me um, see that and, and own that, which was very important to me. I, I think being a show rabbi is one of the most important jobs a person can have. And I have tremendous respect for everybody who does it. It's a very hard job for a whole host of reasons. Um, but I also didn't want to create this idealized fantasy out of it. There's amazing parts of it, but those amazing parts go hand in hand with the most difficult parts. And again, that we, we have to try to try to hold that together. So I wanted to uh, spend some time uh, hearing your uh, explanation and elaboration of a chapter in the book on Rev Cook's confrontation with Orthodoxy's idols, uh, the idolatry that that persists, you know, in some in some fashion uh, within our community. Uh, you know, what are these idolatrous uh, dead ends for orthodoxy? What are the ideological dead ends for orthodoxy? How do you see that? How do Rav Cook see that? And how do you see that as being a relevant message for our community today? So one of the things that we don't quite associate with Rav Cook um, is the notion that Rav Cook was actually a great critic of orthodoxy. And the reason we don't, we don't think that is because we look at the image of the man and we see this great pious rabbi before us, right? Long beard, the spotic. Right, we know just how pious he was. I mean, in his own personal practices, uh, but at the same time, Rav Cook wrote some very, very harsh things about what he saw as uh, sort of the status quo of the of orthodoxy of the orthodox rabbinic establishment of of his time. Um, one of the things that I'll just give you one very clear example. Right, Rav Cook lives in a time when the younger generation of Jews are almost abandoning Torah wholesale, abandoning religious life. And in that moment, most of the Orthodox establishment are doing what the Orthodox establishment always does, 
when they see Jews not following what they perceive to be the proper path and going off the derech, right? They blame the Jews, right? They're the ones who are doing it wrong. Rav Kook, however, um, turns inward and he says, you know what? If they're abandoning term religious life, um, they may have a good reason for that. Uh, it may be because we failed to provide a vision of Torah for them that speaks to them in their generation. Um, and what Rav Kook says is even harsher than that. He says, you know what? It's also in no small part due to the moral failings of the Orthodox rabbinic establishment. When they see rabbis uh, engaging in Hill Hashem, which clearly happens quite a bit. I mean, it happens in Rav Kook time and it still happens, happens today, right? That becomes the real impetus for their leaving uh, Torah behind because that's what Hill Hashem does, right? It turns people off to Torah. The Gemara and Yama says, right? You see somebody you look up to religiously violating the Torah, you'll say to yourself, what the heck is the point of all this? Why do I need any of this? Um, so Rav Cook says we have to uh, point the criticism uh, inward. Um, and this criticism of orthodoxy, he writes these things even before he makes Aliyah, um, but after he makes Aliyah, it intensifies in part because of his identification with secular Zionists, who are, again, not like secular in the sense they've never been exposed to Yiddishkeit. These are people who, especially during the second Aliyah, those who come from 1904 to 1914, they all deeply learned, traditional, pious backgrounds. These are not Amearis at all. Like, they, they know a lot. Um, and when he sees them abandoning Torah, it's, it's for, in many ways, because Torah didn't live up to their own religious ideals. And secular Zionism offers an opportunity for those ideas to be, to be, uh, to be fulfilled. So he identifies with their own criticisms, particularly of the establishment Haredi community in Israel, which Rav Cook sees as being um, overly insular, uh, and fearful, but again, this is a criticism he has writ large for uh, for um, uh, orthodoxy. Uh, I'll just point out for him one of the defining features that he sees that that, that demonstrates that orthodoxy has a problem um, is fear, right? The fear that is so predominant um, throughout people's religious lives and 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 religious thinking uh, within within orthodoxy, and he sees that that fear paralyzes people. Uh, and it causes them to assume dangers are hiding everywhere rather than realizing that the modern world is full of all sorts of possibilities, right? They just, under every rock, all they can imagine is something terrible um, instead of realizing that there, there's always possibilities and, and, and potential there. And as the world is changing, if orthodoxy remains fearful and passive, right, it basically opens itself up to, again, uh, turning the Torah into something that is rigid and objectified and no longer speaks or no longer even carries what the authentic divine truth that, it, that, it's, uh, that it's supposed to. And uh, just one other point I'll make too is that for, for Rav Cook, these concerns about orthodoxy becoming overly ideological, of becoming overly idolatrous, for him, these are theological concerns. They stem from a distorted understanding of, of God, which again is something interesting to us that the theological is, is at the root here. We don't often think that way as Jews. We think sort of the theology comes secondary. But for Rav Cook, he recognizes that the way we think about God, right, if God represents our ultimate ideals, our, our ultimate concerns, right, the way we think about God is going to impact the way we are as religious personalities uh, in the world. And what he knows is that orthodoxy is dominated by a vision of God that is limited, um, that has this excessive and improper fear of heaven, um, that they make an idol out of God by conceiving of God as a ruthless power who demands subservience above all else. That's the defining feature for Rav Cook. They've just turned God into this rigid thing that just demands subservience. He uses the language ruthless power. 
that's all God is at the at the end of the day. Um, and again, this is he doesn't cite Feuerbach, but he he in a certain sense is playing up on Feuerbach's insights. A German religious philosopher from the uh, 19th century, right? The way you conceive of God is the way you conceive of sort of the human ideal on a certain level. And if God is this commanding, ruthless monarch who demands subservience, then that's the kind of either religious personalities that we will create to imitate God, or we will create what we think God wants, which is passive, submissive, you know, weak, uh, you know, in, in individuals. And for of Cook, again, that perspective is idolatrous. That's not what God is or what, what God uh, could ever want. So just to, I want to like connect those dots in a very clear way, make sure I understand the argument that Rav Cook is making, the overly fearful, timid, reactionary, uh, rejecting change uh, form of orthodoxy is reflecting a sense of God as a vindictive, punishing um, mm-hmm. sovereign. And so it's not a it's not a religious not a psychological problem. It's not a religious problem. It's it's idolatrous because it's it's conceiving of God in this very false, limited yes, uh, yes. way, right? It's uh it's much bigger. It's a much bigger yeah, problem it, than in than some it ways is. it is a psychological problem in the sense because of the way in which the theological conception is then impacts and reflected in the human psyche. Um and and, and again, there's mm-hmm. a in psychoanalysis there's a, a term that's developed in the. Lacanian psychoanalysis for thinking about ideology, this term called the big other. And the way the big other works is that we all have sort of an ideological frame in which we look at the world. And the big other represents that peace that sort of holds everything together, right? Like all the contradictions are resolved by being able to appeal to this, you know, big other that kind of like puts, creates order and structure to whatever, however the frame of thinking it is. And there's a lot of similarity between what Rav Cook is saying here about this sort of idolatrous, ruthless power, the way that God is often conceived, and this idea of a, of a big other, who at the end of the day is sort of making demands of us, but we accept that because that's the way of the whole system becoming whole, right? Like, that's what the thing, that's what the big other wants, that's what we're ultimately going to do, and that's the way the world has to work. As long as the big other wants it and we do it, then everything kind of holds together. Um, and the problem with that perspective, of course, is that, you know, once you sort of imagine God in that fashion to sort of plug the hole of the of the of the difficulty and the uncertainty of living in reality, um, then it makes things very challenging. Because if you think you know what God wants and God's demands are clear, then all you have to do is just do them right concretely and just move on. Right. If God, what God wants is uncertain, if what God wants is open ended on a certain level, that creates a you know profound anxiety for us as human beings. And a big part of Lacanian psychoanalysis is moving beyond a conception of God as the big other, in which everything is clear and rigid and 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 laid out and all conflicts resolved, um, to recognizing that it's a bit more complicated than that. And we never really know what the other wants on a certain level. And again, if there's if we believe that God is ain self, right, then again, Rav Cook talks about this. Even any kind of echoing the Rambam, any kind of language we might use to try to capture God or what God wants is on a certain level false, um, which can, for Rav Cook, push us towards these infinite horizons, which can be liberating. But, you know, what he, Rav Cook doesn't say this, but it's also clearly there. It can also be deeply anxiety provoking, right? If God is ain't self, right, how do we, how do we understand that? Or what can that, what ground does that give to a reality in which, again, things are not so clear and, it would be so much easier if we could just say in stark black and white terms, okay, this is what God wants of us. 
So 100 years after Rev. Cook uh, made Aliyah for that first time, you know, where we find ourselves now, is, is there a, do you think Orthodoxy is similarly uh, timid, similarly idolatrous, uh, gets stuck in these ideological dead, end, dead ends today no, no less than, than so 100 years ago? It's interesting. You know, well, Rev. Cook does criticize the timidity of, of Orthodoxy. He also knows that that same timidness can lead to zealotry. When you mm-hmm. lack a firm grounding um, and a self-confidence that comes with that, Right, the moment that your beliefs are challenged is the moment you need to respond with a, so almost a violent assertion of what your actual uh, beliefs uh, beliefs are. But in the book, in that chapter, I try to highlight three dimensions that sort of shows us in Ruff Cook's understanding what ideological thinking is, or for him, what he calls excessive and improper fear of God, fear of heaven. And um, he basically, I, I noted three characteristics, in which when you look at them, you do see them, all, you know, very much present in in Orthodox thinking and life today. So he argues, first thing he argues is that it is forbidden for the fear of God to push away one's natural morality, right? This is probably one of Rav Cook's most famous teachings, right? If you think that being from requires you to push away your most basic human instincts of morality, then Rav Cook says there's something fundamentally invalid of, of the religious orientation, the fear of God that is, that is behind that. Um, and again, I, you know, I'll, I'll expand in a moment how we see these today. That's, that's point number one. Uh, point number two is the fear of thought, right? That this excessive fear of heaven, that's ideological thinking, leads to a fear of thought, a fear of ideas, a fear of, 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 of engaging any ideas that might theoretically be challenging, right? Out of that sense, if I, if I lift up the stone, I'm only going to find things that are disgusting and horrible, right? As opposed to recognizing I might lift up the stone and find something there that is going to enable me to live. Um, So that fear of thought, that fear of ideas um, is a second feature. And then the third feature of Cook talks about uh, is the sense of conformity uh, that Mm -hmm. with rabbis, that rabbis are unwilling to state independent opinions for fear of being heavily criticized and ridiculed and maybe losing their jobs. Um, for stating what they actually know to be to be true, um, and that conformity is deeply problematic for Rav Kook, and he, he actually talks about this in the context of a heter of selling the land during the Shemitah year, which he supported as a somewhat controversial position. And he notes that there are rabbis who know this is valid, but they're unwilling to state it again because of fear of what the pushback is going to be. And he just thinks that you know, fear of heaven. If it does anything, it has to give you the courage to do the right thing. It can't give you, you know, cause you to be so fearful about what the consequences are going to be or that you're going to be ostracized or, or anything like that. And when you look at these three conditions, this sense of, 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 of having one's natural morality being snuffed out or a fear of engaging with things that are different and, and new or this need to conform, then, yeah, like it's very easy for me to see how these are ongoing features of of modern Orthodox life, and, and certainly even in, in religious Zionism. And I'll just point to one example that's going on today that's that's certainly controversial, but does reflect this. And for people that have been watching the news, they'll know that Yeshiva University has been in the midst of a legal dispute around the establishment of a club, of a, club a student club for um, uh, students to identify. It doesn't even have to be for students to identify. It's an LGBT club, right? Who comes is, is up to whoever who, who comes. Um, and one of the striking things about this, and obviously the disputes around the place of LGBT Jews in the Orthodox community has been ongoing, but when you look at the discourse, and again, that's what Rav Cook is sort of pointing to, what are sort of the, the effects of this? How does this play out? Again, what you see is people 
very willing, Orthodox writers being very willing to like completely ignore the fundamental harm that is done um, to LGBT Orthodox Jews who can't even begin to find a space in the Orthodox community where that that piece can be minimally understood. Right? It's just like, no, we don't care. These people have to suffer on some of them. They don't say that, but it's almost implicit. It makes you wonder, you know, again, even a, a five-year-old has some level of empathy for those that are suffering. Like, wh why can't we find that, you know, here? Um, that second dimension, the fear of thought, the fear of fear of fear of new or difficult ideas. Again, LGBT issue is a very complicated issue for many reasons. Um, but that doesn't mean you you can't engage it or that you can kind of dismiss it or you can, you know, fight your legal way out of it. You know, even if the Supreme Court rules in YU's favor, the problem is not going away. And there has to be a robust engagement with it. And when there's been attempts to do that, there's been a tremendous amount of uh, of pushback. And then Again, this third point, this conformity, this fear of, of people being able to stage, rabbis in particular, independent positions um, out of fear of what the, everybody else will say. And as long as these dimensions are what are driving the religious response, then you have to ask yourself, well, wait a second. Like, is there a, a true, the people who are fighting against the LGBT club are saying, we are fighting for God. We are fighting for Yerachimayim. Um, But if these characteristics are either there or lacking, we certainly have to ask ourselves, is that the, the fear of heaven um, that is the kind that we should be aspiring to? Or is it the success of an improper fear of heaven that is ideological, that again, conceives of God as a, as a ruthless power that we have to hold the line, we have to do the boundary maintenance. And if people, some people are going to suffer, that's just the way it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I look at that debate and just the, the, the language and emotion around it, and it certainly seems to me that that those these problematic dimensions of ideology uh, are still very much there within idolatry, even you could say, are still very much there within within modern orthodoxy. So let, let's pivot to Rev Shigar now. Rev Cook, it's been over eighty years since he died. Rev Shigar uh, lived much more uh, much more re recently. He died fifteen years ago, uh, but since his death as well, you know, there's been you know fifteen years is uh, was not uh, was not yesterday. So uh, like, what's 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 the state of religious Zionist, uh, religious Zionism as you experience it, as you live it, as you're there living in Israel? And I, I guess what, what you mentioned already, what you saw as Rav Shigar's contribution in his uh, dialectical thinking, but like, what does he have to say today, 15 years later? Like, is he still uh, offer some, some guidance for where religious Zionism is now um, and, and where, where it's so headed? Part of what makes Rav Shigar interesting and important is that, and in my opinion, he's the most significant religious Zionist thinker since since Rob Cook. Is that he's born in 1949, one year after the state uh, is established. So he grows up with the state as a reality. He is a, for lack of a better expression, homegrown religious Zionist thinker, uh, and that makes him unique because in his life, state of Israel was always there. It wasn't a question. It wasn't a possibility. It was a fundamental reality. Um, and so, religious Zionism is the world he grows up in. Uh, it's the culture he is immersed in. And it's the language that that he learns to speak, and it's the language that he continues to speak throughout his life. Even though, like Rav Cook, he is also becomes a critic of it, and he sees the challenges of it, and there are moments where he clearly feels somewhat alienated from it. If there's one thing Rav Shigar is always clear about, um, it, and I heard one of his students say this say this once, is that if you are going to criticize something, it's better do to to criticize that which you are at, where you actually find your home in it. Meaning criticizing things from the outside is an easy game, right? Like the hard part is to actually to, to, to criticize the home that you come from and do it with the intention of staying in that home. 
not just I'm going to leave it and throw rocks at it from the outside, but like I'm here, uh, it's my home, but there are, you know, real challenges here. And, and that's certainly where Rob Shagar uh, is, um, you know, is, is, is coming from. Uh, he writes, you know, again, he is a, a rabbi through, you know, 80s and 90s when many important and eventful things are, are, are happening uh, in Israel. Uh, religious Zionism is coming into its own, but it's also encountering all of these new possibilities and, and real challenges, right? The, the settlement enterprise really takes off after 67, right? When he's just becoming an adult and all of, again, the possibilities and challenges around that are emerging through his, um, through his, uh, his lifetime. Um, for Rav Cook, I'm sorry, for Shigar, what he keeps hitting upon again and again is this idea that religious Zionism is built on contradictions, right? Religious and secular, Jewish and Israeli, secular culture and Torah, academic studies and yeshiva studies, right? Religious Zionism is always trying to combine all these different and contradictory elements together. And religious Zionism tries to often act as if they're not contradictory. There's a way to kind of hold it all together, right? That which is secular, well, as Rav Cook would say, it's just a matter of time until we make it holy. Or we can just say, okay, this is where the secular world sort of has its place, and this is where the religious world has its place, right? The, the, the aspect or the approach of compartmentalization. Um, Shigar gets that, and he's constantly trying to, uh, to grapple with it. Um, and again, he sees religious Zionism's contradictions as a source of its, of its, of its strength. Um, and I think what's important to, to keep in mind, too, just historically, religious Zionism has always been fairly diverse, um, but the community has had a more or less cohesive identity. Uh, traditionally, there was a religious Zionist political party, Mafdal, and most religious Zionists voted for that party. Over time, Mafdal was actually a little bit on the left. It was classically associated with Mapai, which became, became labor, ironically. And then over time, it has shifted somewhat to the right. Um, and what has happened with religious Zionism, and particularly in recent years, sort of the ideological nature of religious Zionism has loosened a little bit. And what has happened is that the sort of the right end and the left end have kind of, you know, polarized a bit more and drifted apart from each other. And again, there's this sense if religious Zionism is built on contradictions, can those contradictions hold? I'll just note that, um, you know, today, Mafdal as, as the traditional party no longer exists. It's been replaced by by Yehudi and now sort of the Tzionut Datit. Um, and again, we'll sort of see where that goes in the, uh, in the coming election. But what has happened now is that many political parties have religious Zionist representation, right? Religious Zionists have now spread out through all the whole political spectrum. They're no longer held together in one place. And as we saw with our previous prime, prime minister who was identified as a religious Zionist, they now reach the, you know, the highest echelons of uh, power. Um, the other problem that religious Zionism deals with, and I'll tie this all back to Shigar, is something that you don't hear in America. Maybe you did 50 or 60 years ago. You don't hear anymore today. And that is the problem of what they call bourganut, right? Which in English would be bourgeoisie life, right? That religious Zionism used to have this great ideological fervor around the settlements, around serving in the army, right? They were sort of the, the modern pioneers. And what has essentially happened is that religious Zionism has achieved an upper middle class lifestyle. Even life in, in the Shtachim today, right, in the, in the West Bank, for religious Zionists, is a level, a socioeconomic level that was never the way it was, right? You used to go out there, you live in caravans. Now you go out there and you can live in like, you know, a, a wonderful, almost luxury gated community, depending on, on where you are. 
And there's an awareness, self-awareness with religiousism that as it becomes more entrenched in middle-class life, that also sort of dulls the ideological edge, um, but also sort of creates possibilities too, right? As there's sort of a less uh, narrow ideological focus, right? That, that sort of opens up possibilities for other things. So again, where, where does Rav Shigar, you know, fit into all of this? Um, a couple of things. Rav Shigar emphasized again and again that there's a tendency within religious Zionism to keep trying to go back to the answers of Rav Cook to answer the questions of today. And he simply thinks that's not acceptable, right? Even Rav Cook would think that that is not acceptable, right? We have to grapple with the reality in front of us. And that means being a willingness to come up with new answers to, to, to new questions. But what Rav Shigar would also say is that religious Zionism is historically, and Rav Cook would agree, been defined by both contradiction um, and the aspiration for renewal, for growth and for change and for, for innovation. Um, and those two things often go hand in hand. It's the energy created by contradictions that keeps pushing us towards new ideas and, and attempts at new, at new resolutions. And I think for Shigar, the challenge for religious Zionism is how to hold on to those contradictions as a source for you know, renewal, for, for really addressing the challenges of the moment. And the real issue is that as religious Zionism sort of settles into middle-class life, and the ideological cohesion sort of falls apart and polarization takes place and it's more of a shift to the right and more of a shift to the left, right? There's a fragmentation and you see that now, you know, politically. Um, and I think Rav Shigar would, would say, how do we, again, hold the contradictions and allow that to uh, power us towards uh, new ideas um, that can maintain religious Zionism and all of its um, creativity and, and, and energy, with polarization, with the fragmentation comes real problems, again, both on sort of uh, as religious Zionism becomes more secularized and as it becomes more nationalized. Uh, I, I can't speak for Rav Shigar about what he would think about uh, people like uh, Vitsala Smodrich and, and uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who are these right-wing ideologues. But deep down, I want to say that he would be horrified by their rhetoric and language because he writes about what he sees as the, the dangers of chauvinism within religious Zionism. Rav Shigar has a deep ethical orientation in his thought, our responsibility to the other, the Jewish other, and even the Palestinian other. Um, and to see that kind of religious extremism rise is, is I think, a very you know scary thing. I think Rav Shigar would name it, and, and, and he would say, we have to fight this. I think he wouldn't, again, try to just look the other way. And one of the things I ask myself, right, the last election, those guys did not get in, but we don't, we're months away from another election. We don't know what the results are going to be, but it's not looking great. And there's a real possibility Itamar Ben-Gvir could be a minister in the government. And I think I speak as a relatively liberal, you know, religious Zionist that um, we really dodged a bullet in the last election. Like, like we didn't have to deal with that reality. Um, but now the real test comes and religious Zionism is going to have to deal with its demons. And I, I, I at least when I look at Rav Shigar's thought, I think, number one, I see somebody who recognizes that those are demons um, and that they have to be named and that they have to be fought. Uh, and I, and I'm, but I'm also left wondering, does religious Zionism really have the strength to do that, to, uh, and the courage to do that? Or when push comes to shove, are we going to discover that most of religious Zionism is happy to go along with that approach? And that's the real scary thing. But if there's anything going back to what we said before about ideology, right? Real Yerat Shemayim is the willingness to not conform and to confront the difficult ideas. And I got to believe that if Rav Shigar's thought has taught us anything or holds the, uh, the possibility of anything is that when we face those real challenges, that we don't just stick our heads in the sand and become passive or just say, oh, God really just wants this, you know, this, this, this chauvinistic, you know, nationalistic, you know, uh, approach. 
but no, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, you know, tackle the contradictions. Um, and with all of the, with all the difficulty that's, that's involved with that. Just to clarify for the, for listeners who don't, who aren't familiar with the name, he's not, not yet a household name in America, but, uh, Ben Gvir is, a disciple of Rabbi Meir Kahana. So he represents less uh, religious fanaticism as a sort of the, the right-wing extreme of Israeli politics. Uh, and he's uh, was courted into power by Netanyahu and may, may end up as a minister in the next, if Netanyahu is uh, able to form a government, it's very likely Ben Gvir will be a minister, which would be, uh, I think, American Jewry is not yet ready for that. It's not yet, uh, you know, <laughs> taken, uh, taken stock of that possibility and what that would mean for our own... Uh, religious Zionism has... Fully. And, and I think, you know, Kahana never was in the Knesset, but never yeah. was, was persona non grata to a certain extent when he was in the Knesset. When, when you know, the, you can look up the videos on YouTube, Kahana would give the speeches and everybody would leave. Um, that will not be the reality if Ben Gavir is in the Knesset, which says something very unfortunate about where the Jewish state is and where the Jewish people are are, are, uh, are at, it in, 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 at, at this particular, you know, point in um, time. But I, I want to just make one more point. One of the things I appreciate about Rav Shigar is he does emphasize again and again what he sees as the fundamental ethic of the Torah, a fundamental message of the Torah, is our responsibility towards the other, right? The other who is weak and vulnerable. Uh, and um, and he sees that, again, as Zionism's greatest challenge, right? That's nationalism's greatest challenge. Uh, and we sometimes associate that in orthodoxy with, that, with a liberal narrative, right? And it's it's just so important to me. That that's not true. That's the Torah's message. Like it says it again and again and again. And to encounter a religious Zionist thinker or any Orthodox thinker that just affirms that without any qualification or hesitation or caveat, like it, God says, love the stranger, right? We were slaves in Egypt. We cannot subjugate another people forever. Um, Rav, Rav Shagar emphasizes these points. These are basic points. They're undebatable truths as far as I'm concerned and as far as he's concerned. Uh, and um, uh, it's important to me that there are religious Zionist thinkers that can keep, you know, saying that. And and we all have to be willing to say that when push comes to doesn't mean that provides all the answers, but for people like, you know, Ben Gvir, that's simply not Torah for them. It just isn't. Like in, for them, it's a Torah of power, as Kahana illustrated. And the Jewish people's job is to basically strike fear in their enemies. And that's the way, um, that's the way we're going to, that's the way they believe God's honor will be redeemed. Um, you know, for Rav Cook and Rav Shigar, nothing could be farther from the, the truth of Torah. Yeah. So Rav Shigar is thought of as a champion of postmodernism within a Jewish framework. So like, and postmodernism, you know, like, what, what is postmodernism? Uh, if you, you know, it's one of these terms that people, I don't know, people often use, I often use without necessarily always having a clear understand, definition like uh, maybe neoliberalism, right? Sort of uh, one of these uh, terms that we throw around without always and condemn sometimes or champion without fully understanding. So how, in what way was Rav Shigar postmodern and why uh, did he see it as, as something that has value? What did it enrich in our life of, you know, mitzvah observance and, and embrace of Torah? And, and I guess why, why do so many contemporary Orthodox rabbis and thought leaders, you know, just say all sorts of negative things about postmodernism? What did Rav Shigar see that they, that they don't see? That postmodernism. So, I'm I'm going to um start with sort of the one of the last points you made before I st- attack the sort of general mm-hmm. postmodernism. So, in the book, I, I included a quote by uh, Dr. Rivka Press Schwartz, who is a well-known modern Orthodox educator. She teaches at SAR. She's very much if anybody deserves the term of being like an Orthodox social critic, like it's her. Like she really she tries to speak out on issues of substance and importance from a critical perspective, and she's again willing to do it even though that always comes with the cost in orthodoxy. 
Um, so in one of her articles, she identifies this problem. And the problem is that modern orthodoxy prides itself on an engagement with intellectual culture. However, when you start to look closely, you realize that the intellectual culture that modern orthodoxy is engaging with is actually somewhat limited. And it really sort of ended a long time ago. I'm, I'm going to read you the quote from her because I think it, it captures something very important that we don't often fully realize about uh, modern orthodoxy. She writes, modern orthodoxy has frozen its conception of religiously permissible mada, mada being a term for sort of intellectual culture, at that which the Rav, Rav Soloveitchik, engaged at at the University of Berlin in the 1920s, or perhaps with that which Rav Aaron Lichtenstein engaged at Harvard of the 1950s. In this, modern orthodoxy is reminiscent of an aging Albert Einstein whose comfort with modern physics ended with his theory of general relativity, but never extended to the indeterminism and seeming senselessness of quantum theory. Mm -hmm. So her point here is that, like, again, thinking always continues. And that's certainly true in science. Right? There are major developments all the time. And to assume that you can sort of fix thought in one place in one time and not have to move forward is simply doesn't make any sense. It's it's anachronistic on a certain level. I, I once heard Rav Ezra Beck, who's a, uh, a Ram at a longtime Ram at uh, Yeshiva Haratzion at Gush, um, make a point of saying in a sheer that Rav Lichtenstein never quoted anyone born after 1850. Uh, and this was like a point of pride, essentially, like that this is this is what he does. So the problem with this, and I've always been bothered by like this sentiment, is that a lot has happened to humanity since 1850, and a lot has happened to humanity since 1950. And again, we sort of have to ask ourselves, why would we ever stop engaging with the intellectual culture that we are in just because it is more challenging. Um, do, we, do we really think there's nothing of value there? And even if we think it's more challenging, we also have to understand that it trickles down to the world around us. Um, to, so to assume, again, that we can sort of put our head in the sand and avoid it, uh, it just seems to me not to accord with, 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 uh, with reality. So what, what Rivka is getting at here is, again, right, that modern orthodoxy's engagement with intellectual culture was kind of limited to sort of an early 20th century, late 19th century way of thinking. Um, but that doesn't really hold o over time. Now, when we talk about the term postmodernism, which means there hasn't been an engagement with really anything after 1950, let alone postmodernism. Postmodernism is a term that was used to capture certain thinkers, primarily in the 1980s, um, originating in what is often referred to as French theory, French thinkers, uh, you know, Michel Foucault, Jean-Paul Lyotard, Derrida, uh, who were, again, sort of continuing philosophy in its forward movement, trying to think through the world in which, in which we live. Uh, most of the academic world does not use the language of postmodernism today. Postmodernism was a bit of like a flash in the pan. It caught a certain moment. What it really is is part of a, a broader stream of thought that is what, it, what is often referred to as continental philosophy, right? So when we think of like existentialism, uh, if we think of, you know, Satra, like, again, sort of mid-20th century, Heidegger, right? Any of the great philosophers from, let's say, the first half of the uh, of, of the 20th century. In many ways, the thinkers who are known for, quote unquote, being postmodern are just a continuation of that. They are often students of those individuals. They see themselves in dialogue with those in those earlier philosophers. It's a continuation. Um, and what it really is best, uh, you know, the, the broader thrust of it is often best understood under the name post-structuralism, 
which better captures what some of these thinkers, how they see themselves. Very few of any of them saw themselves or used that language of, of postmodern. But for Shigar, it becomes a catch-all um, for these thinkers. And again, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is he seeing there? Like, what is it that is, um, that is important to him? So part of what makes Rav Shigar unique is that he never goes to university, right? Unlike the Rav, unlike Rav Lechtenstein, he doesn't go to university. And that in some ways may make his engagement with these thinkers easier. Because when you go to university, you encounter sort of not just the ideas, but the manifestation of these ideas in ways that could be off-putting. When you study these ideas in a yeshiva almost, or reading them at home, right, you encounter them in a, a sort of a different fashion. Um, and it's much easier to be Megayer, to convert them, when you aren't at a, at a university. So I think there's something very much to that. Rav Shigar has an interest in, in philosophy from the time he's young. Uh, already in, in the 80s, when he's uh, serving as Rosh Yeshiva, Yeshiva HaKotel, he's reading existentialist philosophers, he's reading sociological literature, it's clear, and it's influencing, and he's bringing it into his, his, his Torah. Rav Shigar conceives of secular thought as being a way to translate the Torah into a language that can speak to us in a kind of a different fashion, that can hit us in a different place. The problem with most religious language, it goes back to what we were saying before, it's all abstractions. It's jargon for like almost, I'm going to use the negative term there. We say words like kedusha, like holiness, and we just say them as if they are obviously clear what that means, right? It's jargon. It's, it's ideological language. It, 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 they often don't mean anything. They mean whatever we, we are sort of trying to get at in the context in which we use them. Uh, for Rav Shigar, philosophical language is a way of unpacking religious language and almost putting the meaning back into it um, and enabling us to experience religious language in a different fashion. Because again, what translation does, it, it kind of gives a different spin to it, um, but at the same time actually maybe allows you to access elements of it that you couldn't if the translation uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't there. Uh, philosophy is something that's important to him. In the mid to late 90s, he's turning to these you know, postmodernism, uh, these French thinkers, particularly French theory. Uh, and part of this coincides with the fact that Israel's changing, Zionism is changing. You reach a period of what becomes known as post-Zionism, right? People are questioning the Zionist narrative, right? Capitalism is, is transforming Israeli society in all sorts of ways. Um, nationalism is sort of moving away from sort of the, you know, the tanks and the flags of, of earlier years. Um, and Zionism has to be, you know, nationalism has to be re rethought. And Rav Shigar turns to these thinkers as a way of making sense of the fact that Israel is changing and as in, in, in to harness them to translate religious language and infuse all sorts of um, uh, different meaning into it. One thing people don't understand, and it's worth noting this, is the extent to which post-structuralism is influenced by Jewish thought. And this isn't something that people have a great understanding about, but it's important that people should know this. Um, Rosens, Franz Rosenzweig, the great German Jewish philosopher of the early 20th century, his writings had a great influence on Emmanuel Levinas, um, and Emmanuel, who, who can and maybe should be understood as a post-structuralist, um, and Emmanuel Levinas's writings had a great influence on Derrida. Um, and when it comes to both questions of ethics and questions of hermeneutics, um, there is a Jewish influence on what we think of as French theory. Uh, it's, it's all over the place. I mean, I could, I could spend hours on this. This is like a pet topic of mine that people don't realize that there are, you know, again, there's a turn in French theory towards Midrash. Literary theory starts turning towards Midrash. That's happening in France from scholars who are not like Jewish in any way whatsoever. France historically was a Catholic country before it was a, uh, 
you know, a secular country. Uh, but there's a turning towards Jewish ideas because of them offering an alternative to sort of modern, rational, liberal modernity. Um, that Judaism represents something that's the other to Christian, secular, rational modernity and offers a different way of thinking. So French theory, post-structuralism uh, does deal with a lot of this. And one of the things, again, again post-structuralism is embraced. This is the idea that texts don't have an absolute objective meaning. Well, I'll point out, right, we as Jews believe the Torah doesn't have an absolute objective meaning, right, that they can be read in all sorts of ways. Um, and the emphasis within, again, post-structuralism, post-modernism, on the other, ethical obligation towards the other, no matter what, it's like absolute in the way that other just sort of cuts through all other social relations. But right? again, there's, there's something that, that is very deeply Jewish about that. So these elements, I think Rav Shigar understood um, could be used to reinvigorate our understanding of Torah. Um, post-structuralism also offers a critique of, again, individualism, modern rationality. Um, it, it, it forces us to see human beings within the context of larger structures and ideologies that shape us. Big central theme in post-structuralism is the critique of ideology, which in many ways could be understood as very similar to the Jewish critique of idolatry. I mean, I was already make, alluding to that with Rob Cook. But that's like a, a critique that can very easily be, be, be made um, in, a in a straightforward fashion, to be honest, right? Prophets critique idolatry because it's gods that we make with our own hands that we think are gods when they're actually pieces of wood, right? And that's what idolatry is. We create these whole modes of thinking, ways of thought that we think are become reified and real and objective and control us when they're actually products of our own hands. And God is what cuts through all of that ultimately. Um, so I'll, I'll give you just one example of how Rav Shigar imagined post-structuralism offering sort of a translation of religious ideas and a reinvigoration of, of religious ideas. So I personally am, am very much interested in Rav Shigar's use of uh, psychoanalysis as, as a sort of philosophical critical theory. And one of the ideas that he develops, and again, one of the questions that's throughout Rav Shigar's thought is the question of faith, amuna. Right? What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to have faith? When our faith can't be rationally justified, there are no proofs for God. Anybody tells you that, they're, they're, they just have no idea what they're talking about. And even if, you don't have to, if you're not a philosopher, you can just kind of look at the world and say, wait a second, is it obvious that, 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 that God is behind all of this? Uh, and to be a modern person is to grapple with the fact that there are no obvious proofs for God, that God isn't something that we just know to be true. And especially after the Holocaust, right, what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean for Jews to continue to have faith after the Holocaust? On the one hand, you can point to, wow, the miracle of the state of Israel, and that's true. But Jews had to be willing to fight for the state of Israel after the Holocaust. What, what would have possessed Jews to think that such a thing was possible? So one of the ideas that Rav Shigar develops is this question of faith as, as, as being like a symptom, right? Almost like a psychoanalytic symptom, right? A symptom from a psychoanalytic perspective are these repetitive, obsessive things that we're doing that we can't even understand exactly why that we're doing. And we may not even be aware that we're doing them. Um, and what Shigar is getting at is the way in which faith is always something that exceeds us, meaning it's always something that we can never quite put into words. Um, it's something that compels us and that we're consistently drawn to, right? And, and, and in that sense, Faith has this element of, as, of, of being a symptom, a symptomatic uh, response that we can't quite shake, right? You can't quite ever get rid of our symptoms a lot of the time. Um, and for Rabbi Shigar, faith is that which exceeds us and compels us and we hold on to in the way that it keeps bringing us back to God and keeps bringing us back to Torah, keeps bringing us back to each other. 
but just it's never something we're ever going to fully explain. Um, but nonetheless, it's real and it's there and, and, it, and, it, and it brings a force to our lives that we cannot deny. And we don't need to feel like we need to explain it away. Is the person who has OCD, is there ever going to be like an ex explanation that it explains why they do it and then will explain that they should stop doing it? Or we all have these kind of compulsions in our life that we can't fully explain. Um, and there's something very refreshing about, again, liberating ourselves from this need to justify belief and justify faith and just simply say, this is like who I am and this is what compels me and I'm drawn to. Um, and to not feel like I always have to explain it away and, just, and justify it. And again, I, I'm sort of oversimplifying it here, but that's an example of how he uses uh, postmodern, post-structuralism ways of thinking to sort of reinvigorate a different approach to a traditional religious idea. So th thank you so much. Um, so your, your book, Torah Goes Forth from Zion, is available at Amazon, uh, maybe other bookstores as well. Um, and uh, I guess I want to maybe just as a, as a final question, uh, somebody who reads your book is inspired by the essays, what, what would you recommend, where would you send them for further ways to engage with Rev Cook and Rev Shigar? Let's say, you know, I mean, they're voluminous writings in, in Hebrew. What, what, what in English would you recommend for somebody who wants to really engage directly in Rev Cook and Rev Shigar? So for Rav Cook, you know, I, I always recommend uh, Yehuda Mirsky's, you know, brilliant and beautiful intellectual biography of of, uh, of Rav Cook. Um, I'm going to forget the subtitle right now, but it's just it's just a wonderful, powerful book to read. Everybody should read it, whether you have an interest in Rav Cook or not. And it, it, it what Yehuda does so well um, is that even separated by more than a century from Rav Cook, like you feel him and his energy come alive on the page, and that is not easy to do. Uh, and he treats Rav Cook as a flesh and blood human being, right? The, uh, perhaps the most popular biography of, of Rav Cook is calls Rav Cook an angel among, among men. Um, that's the subtitle. And again, Rav Cook is often conceived as this angelic figure, this tzaddik that we can't relate to. And what I so appreciate about Yehuda's intellectual biography is that it, Rav Cook does come across in certain elements as angelic, but he is so much clearly also a, a human being. And Yehuda captures those contradictions. I absolutely recommend that. And then there are collections of translations of, of, uh, of Cook's writings. A good friend of mine, Ari Zev Schwartz, has a wonderful collection of translations. Um, the, uh, Baruch ben Boxer it, it has the classic. Ben Sion, ben Boxer. Ben Boxer yeah. As I should know, he has the classic um, volume of, of translations of Rub Cook. Uh, some translations of things are better than others by, by everybody, but you just, again, Rav Cook's Hebrew is difficult. So just read it in translation. There's nothing wrong with that. And as you feel more comfortable, you work your way back to the Hebrew, but find things that grab you. You know, don't, you don't have to understand all of it. Just find those pieces that there's like, whoa, there's something going on here. There's something more as he's getting at something that I, I kind of knew, but could never quite put into words. Like when you find those pieces, that's when you're finding something that's like, wow, that's, that's calling to you. Uh, in terms of Rav Shigar, there hasn't been a whole lot in English. There's one small collection of essays that was translated into English. I'm not sure that's the best place to start with Rav Shigar. There is another collection of essays of Rav Shigar that will, is, it's been translated and it's going to be published in the next few months. Um, it it's, takes essays of Rav Shigar on the holidays, which by definition are a little bit easier. Not as easier, but they, their starting point is language and you know the context that we're familiar with. Um, and so I very much would recommend uh, getting that. And hopefully there'll be more out of Shigar in English in, in the near future. There hasn't even been that much published in Hebrew of Shigar. There's been a tremendous amount published of his own writings posthumously. And there's been a lot of articles on Rav Shigar, but not, not books yet. Um, part of what makes Rav Shigar important, and I keep telling people this, 
is that even if you don't agree with Rav Shagar's approach, what you have to understand is that there has not been a religious thinker, a modern Orthodox religious Zionist thinker, who deals with the questions that he's dealing with, with the seriousness and depth in which he is dealing with them. Which means like, if you want to engage sort of, sort of like classic questions, right? But you want an answer past the 1950, you're going to have no choice but to open up his books. Again, you may just disagree with them, but there's literally nowhere else to go that grapples with these issues, with the seriousness with which, with, with which he does them. And the authenticity of the, of, of, you read it, it's Torah. I mean, you can disagree with it, but it's clearly Torah. It's written as, you know, Torah. And that is what is going to make Rav Shigar in, in important in an enduring sense, because people are going to struggle with questions and they're going to open up his books because that's the only you know place to go. And I, that's something that's very important. I, I take solace in that. I, I don't know how much everybody wants to access or open his stuff now, but it's going to make his work important and enduring. In the same way that Rav Cook does, right? If there's so many questions and issues and dilemmas Rav Cook is trying to think through that nobody else after him really even comes close to. And that's why we still open up Rav Cook's writings because he's addressing issues in a, with the kind of depth and creativity that just we can't find elsewhere. And, and, I, and I see that same element in, in Rav Shagar, which means that there is something you know, enduring there. And then again, that's the test of Torah is ultimately not just does it speak to the moment, but does it endure? And does it endure not because it has the answers that it's going to you know, be accurate for the next hundred years, but it endures in the way that we see within it a, an approach to thinking about Torah that we're going to take forward in our, in our own lives. Uh, and I see, you know, Rav Cook and Rav Shigar is very much, you know, offering that. L last thing I'll say is that, you know, we, we live in uncertain times. And I think we have to always be willing to remind ourselves of that. Uh, and in uncertain times, when everything is changing, right, and the ground under our feet is not no longer stable, right, ideas matter. Because ideas on a certain level are what enable us to orient ourselves towards the world. And when I look at thinkers like Rav Cook and Rav Shigar, I, I say, wow, in times like ours, they are even more important because they're going to keep coming impossible questions that we're going to have to face. Um, and again, we're going to have to keep finding new answers and new ways of thinking to, to address them. And we need religious thinkers who can remind us of what that looks like, what that needs to look like uh, for the Jewish people to be, uh, to be successful. And, you know, I, I cite in the book a, a speech from Rav Cook um, that he gives at the opening of Mahon Harry Fischel in the 1930s, when the world was already starting to fall apart and, I think you and I have spoken about this before, you know, the world we live in right now doesn't feel that different than the eve of World War One or the interwar period in the 20s and 30s. Right. There's a sense in which the institutions that have held for so long may literally come apart at the seams. Um, and at the found founding of, of the Institute in Rav Cook's speech, he says, right, in times like ours, when the world looks like it's coming apart, right, there's an inclination by religious leaders to basically hold up their finger to the wind and try to determine which way the wind is blowing. Right, because they need to sort of come up with short-term solutions to whatever the immediate problems are. Uh, and Rav Cook says that's not good enough, right, for the Jewish people, and and not really for the world either. Um, what sustains us is the Torah, and in uncertain times, we have to turn again to the Torah um, to see it as a source of strength and 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 renewal and recognize. And and I believe this very strongly, right, that the Torah is what sustains the Jewish people because. It is what mediates our relationship to God, right? That's where we encounter God, God's voice, and the way that God's voice can inform our lives. And in times like this, we need thinkers who show us, remind us how to turn to the Torah and how to find God there. Um, and again, how not just to find old answers, but how do we find new answers for the for the uncertain and unforeseen future that is that is ultimately in front of us? Yeah. 
Okay, thank you very much uh, for, for writing this book and publishing this book and then talking about it in such a fascinating way. I, uh, I am midway through the book myself and I am eager to finish it and I want to recommend to all our listeners to, um, uh, to, to get a hold of the book as well. Uh, thank you very much, Zach, for your time. I'm really, really grateful uh, for your, your generosity with your time today. Well, it's it's great to be here, you know, with you. And again, I, I want to encourage people and be willing to engage contradiction, be willing to engage the things that are hard, um, because while it's not easy, you know, if there's one thing God wants of us, I believe it's that, you know, it's that that I can say with you know complete uh, you know complete confidence. And again, in times like ours, it's very easy to run away from contradiction and run towards the ideas and the ways of thinking that that give us comfort. But um, at the end of the day. That's not usually where God is found. That's usually where a lot of problematic things are, are found.